how many of you sent out Christmas cards this year? <laughs> wow, this is terrible. Like, and I saw some hands and I did not get a card from you yet either, by the way. So uh, how many of you have received piles of Christmas cards already this year? Yeah? So the, the, the trend today is not the, you know, fold open kind of card, but what are you receiving mostly? Pictures, right? It's, it's cheaper to get those little picture postcards with pictures of the family and all that kind of stuff. And it's funny because people, there's all these trends. Some people are just sending pictures of the kids. And if you don't see the kids regularly, you're like, I have no idea who these people are, right? <laughs> I need to see the parents before I know who the kids are. Um, and the, the other thing is people uh, are taking bad pictures and sending those anyway. And so I think that's just the coolest idea. I mean, that just takes off all the pressure. So here's some of the cards I've, I've seen this year. Um, just, nothing says love like that, right? You go to the mall, you get one picture with Santa. It's either good or not. And off you go. So you send that. That one looks pretty happy. This is a little creepy. I love the picture of the demon cat in the corner. That's a good thing. And how about this one? Somebody said, hey, let's all do the picture in our pajamas. And that's dad's pajamas, apparently. Okay. And this is my favorite one. <laughs> how great is that? <laughs> you see that picture, it just makes you think joy, doesn't it? Probably out of all the cards, every now and then you'll get, you know, they'll say Merry Christmas, Happy Holiday Seasons, Greetings, all that kind of stuff. Um, and a lot of times on the inside, you'll see a scripture verse. And by far, the most common scripture verse you find in Christmas cards that have scripture is found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Isaiah. It's in your Old Testament. And I'm going to say it's about... I don't know, a little more than halfway through your Bible. Uh, go to Isaiah chapter 9. And we've been here for a couple of weeks, so hopefully you'll be able to find this. And let me just read to you what, what for many of you is a familiar verse. Even if you've never read it in the pages of Scripture, you have heard it before. You've seen it in Christmas cards. Here's what it says. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. I love that last part. God is zealous about this, he tells Israel. He says, don't worry, Israel, there's a time coming. I know it's a tough time now, but there's a time coming when I'm going to provide for you the things that you need the most. And you have to understand, Isaiah is writing this seven to 800 years before the manger scene. So this is prophecy. And there's a lot of prophecy about Christmas in the book of Isaiah, but this is the one that we tend to focus on because it gives us these titles of Jesus 
that um, we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks. And last week we covered the first two, and the first one is that he's a wonderful counselor. And if you, if you didn't hear last week's message, go to the uh, podcast, go to the church website, listen to the message. You put the two together and you, and you have the whole verse outlined for you. But, but the first thing he says is that this Messiah who is coming will be known as a wonderful counselor. And in a time where um, counseling and seeking counsel is all the rage, and in a culture in which we are looking for somebody to give us advice about something, somebody to give us wisdom, somebody to give us counsel, somebody to solve our problems, somebody to help us with direction, and we all need that from time to time, he says, I sent you a wonderful counselor. The Messiah is a wonderful counselor counselor. And by the way, and we talked about this at length last week, his counsel is in this book. So here we have the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who comes to be our counselor, not an average counselor, not a mediocre counselor, a wonderful counselor. And he gives us his counsel. And too many of us leave this book gathering dust and we don't pay any attention to his counsel. Or when we get his counsel, we don't apply it to our lives. And so we talked about that a lot last week, that Jesus came to be our wonderful counselor. But it goes beyond that. It says that he's not only the wonderful counselor, he's also the mighty God. And we talked about this a little bit last week too, just, just to understand the great and powerful God that he is. That, that when we see the baby in a manger, we tend to think helpless, weak, needy. God is anything but helpless, weak, and needy. Amen. He is mighty. In fact, we sang a song today that talked about that, that everything is for him and through him and by him and to him. He's the one who created everything. Jesus, the wonderful counselor, is also the mighty God. And we covered those two things last week. Wow, I could have made last week's sermon a lot shorter, huh? <laughs> that was fast. But, but I, I, I need to get on to the other two titles that are given to us in verse 6. Because in, in addition to being a wonderful counselor, in addition to being our mighty God, he's also known as the eternal father. Now, I'm interested in this. As you've got your Bibles open in, in Isaiah 9, how many of you see, instead of eternal, the word everlasting there? Is he called everlasting father? In a lot of translations, he's, it, it says everlasting father, which is a, a legitimate translation. But let me explain to you why I really prefer the translation eternal father. Usually, when I talk about Greek and Hebrew up here, I'm usually telling you that the reason we need to understand about the Greek and Hebrew is because it's much more precise than English. In this case, it's just the opposite. In, in Hebrew, there's just one word that essentially means timeless or, or unending. And that's the word that is translated here as eternal or everlasting. But, but both the context and the theology that is given to us throughout the rest of Scripture tells us that he's not just an everlasting father, he's an eternal father. And you may think, well, what's the difference? So let me tell you. Um, Everlasting means that from the point at which you begin, you never end, okay? So like some of you are thinking, this sermon is everlasting, right? <laughs> that's kind of what, that's everlasting, okay? There's a beginning point and then there is no end. It goes on forever. Now, listen, you and I are everlasting. 
There was a time in which you did not exist. In any way, shape, or form, you did not exist until the point when you were conceived. And at conception, you began. And once you began, you will never end. Life goes on. You continue. And the scripture talks about that, that that's either going to be in heaven or in hell, but you are going to continue. We are everlasting. God is different. God is eternal. And what that means is that for us, the timeline begins here and goes on forever. For God, there is no beginning to the timeline. Eternity is in both directions. So it means that God never began he has always been. There was no time when somehow through some uh, occurrence, God started to be God. He is the uncaused cause. He is the one that has always been. He is the one from whom everything has come, right? So he is eternal. Now you go, why are we splitting hairs about this word? Because we're not going to understand what Isaiah is trying to tell us here if we don't understand that he is an eternal father. Because what he's claiming here is that the Messiah is not just one that God creates and sends, but the Messiah is God himself. And that's very, very important for us to, to understand. Um, and, and this is really what got him in trouble with the religious leaders of his day, Jesus. It, it, it's, it's not the fact that he preached and everybody liked his preaching. It's not the fact that he went around healing people and therefore he became really, really popular. It's not that. The one thing that the religious leaders of Jesus' day could not get past was the fact that he claimed to be one with the Father. That was the problem. Because to the Jew, that is the ultimate in blasphemy. If you claim to be God, you are blasphemous. And, and the law of Moses tells you what to do when someone is blasphemous in that way. You are supposed to pick up stones and stone them to death right then. Anybody who claims to be God is to be put to death for claiming to be God. And then you can stand over their dead body and say, well, you don't look very God-like right now. And that's what they would do. So Jesus comes out and actually claims to be God. And, and this happens multiple times, but let me just show you one. It's in the Gospel of John chapter 10. So turn to your Bibles to the New Testament and turn to John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book in the New Testament, and go to chapter 10. Because I want you to follow along. We're going to read about 10 verses here, and I want you to see how this unfolds. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 24. The Jews then gathered around him, Jesus, and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe me. The works that I do in my father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Here it is, verse 30. I and the Father are one. And if you're not sure how offensive that statement is, just read verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. As soon as he said, I and the Father are one, they went looking for rocks. They picked up stones to stone him. 
Now, I'm going to let you read the rest of the story on your own to find out what happened to him, whether he made it or not. But, but they picked up stones to stone him because he said, I and the Father are one, which is exactly what Isaiah said would be true of him. He would be known as the eternal Father. It's one thing to claim to know God. It's one thing to claim to be sent by God or represent God. But Jesus claimed to be God. And we shouldn't dance around that and we shouldn't hide from that. That was his claim. Either he was God and therefore is God or he's a liar and we should have nothing to do with him. His, his claims come right to a head right at this point. And, and, and he comes right out and says it. They said, could you please just tell us plainly? He said, how, how about this for plain? I and the Father are one. Now, he knew there was a death sentence to that. Why would he do that? Why would he say, I and the Father are one? I think it's because he and the Father are one. <laughs> I think that's why. And, and, and that if you don't understand that, then Isaiah's prophecy makes no sense. And you don't understand that he is actually the only source of life. Then when he makes claims like, you know, no one comes to the Father except through me, you, you go, okay, obviously this is a get right or get left kind of a decision here. I don't get to just float with Jesus. And, and my friends, there are so many of us who, who just would rather float with Jesus. We like to wave at Jesus and give him a nod and, and let him, you know, be a part of our Christmas parties and stuff like that. But we don't really want him to actually move in and take over and run our lives. And he says, listen, make a choice because I am God. And that doesn't leave any other options. Either you trust him or you don't. So he's not just one sent by God, but he's God himself. Jesus is our eternal father. So that eternal part is important, but the father part is important too, because when I just speak the word father, we all get a different picture in our minds. And it's influenced by the fathers in our own lives and people that we've seen who are fathers. And, and we think of um, certain traits that are associated with fathers. And for some of us, that makes it really hard to relate to God. Because if he's a father, all I know of fathers is this, and I don't want another father, right? Now, some of us have had amazing fathers. Some of us, our fathers are great, godly men who loved us and met our needs and took care of us and trained us up and did all those kinds of things. Some of us had no father at all on the scene. Either he was gone or he passed away or he left or, or something happened and we grew up without a father. And then there's some of us who had really terrible fathers who were abusive and mean-spirited and all of that kind of stuff. And then some, most of us had something in between, right? Which, you know, an imperfect father who tried. Um, and, and that's what I had. I had a good father, but he was imperfect. And he tried, but he fell short. And, and here's what I think of. When I think of my father, the, 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 the word father puts this picture in my three pictures. One is uh, when I was young and my father knew everything and he could do everything and he knew the answer to every question and he had all the resources and, and he was the great provider and he was the one that we looked to for wisdom. He was the one that we looked to, um, you know, whenever we were in trouble. He was the one we were sent to whenever we were in trouble right? That's, that's how I looked at him. He was this larger-than-life, great person. And then as I grew and became a teenager and a young adult, my father went from knowing everything to knowing nothing, right? 
And I realized what a fool the man had been all these years and how clueless he was and all that kind of stuff until as you get older, you begin to appreciate and understand and realize so that as an adult and and I became middle-aged and my father became an old man and just passed away this past year, um, he he became someone that I honored and respected and yet I, I, I couldn't go to him for advice. I couldn't go to him for resources. I didn't go to him for wisdom. I didn't go to him for anything. I became the one who took care of him, right? So I have all these pictures in my head when I think father, and I know you have pictures in your head when you think father, and you need to get past those things because whatever your picture of a father is, here's what I can tell you. Jesus is so much better, so much better. And we just have to understand that Jesus is perfectly loving all the time and his love never fails. Jesus is completely gracious and every ounce of grace that we need comes from him. Jesus is completely loyal. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Jesus is all powerful. There's nothing he cannot do. He is all wise. He has all wisdom so that he knows what he should do. He has all knowledge so that he understands everything. He has all resources so that he meets our every need. Jesus is the perfect father. And that's what Isaiah was trying to get across when he said that the baby in the manger is also our eternal father. We need an eternal father. But then he goes on, and there's a fourth title that is used for Jesus in this passage. He's called the Prince of Peace. Now, there's a word you don't hear every day. Peace. When's the last time you turned on the news? They're just finishing up the weather. Yeah, it's going to be 68 tomorrow, and it's going to be brisk, so take a jacket with you. And now to Chet for the international news. Yes, uh, on an international level, what we see today is in the middle, uh, one second, this just in, nobody's fighting. (laughs) There's peace in the Middle East. Everything is going perfectly. There's nobody mad at each other, nobody threatening anybody, and there is complete peace in the world. Back to you, Bob. Like, when did you ever hear that on the news? Yeah, the next time you hear it will be the first time, and it ain't happening right? There is this, you know, immense lack of peace in our world today, so much so that even the thought of peace is really a foreign thought to us. We don't know anything about a world that is at peace. Left to ourselves, we humans are not good at peace. And that's been the case since Cain and Abel. I'm, I'm actually guessing that's been the case since before Cain and Abel. I have a feeling that after the whole confrontation with God, after Adam and Eve ate the fruit, this is not in the scripture, but when you go to seminary, they show you how to learn these things. Um, <laughs> there, th- that after Adam and Eve ate the fruit and God came and confronted them and, and all of that, and there was curses and there was animals killed and they put on animal skins. And then I could just picture Adam and Eve sitting at the dining room table after that, and Eve giving him the look. You know what the look is. If you're married, you know what the look is, right? And Eve gives him the look and says, the woman that you gave to be with me? Really? Really? Right? And the conflict had to begin there. I guarantee you that's the beginning of conflict. 
And then, of course, that leads to Cain and Abel, and somebody gets murdered, and pretty soon people are going in different directions, and they're forming tribes and factions, and those people are going against one another. There have been so many wars. I tried to do the research to find out so I could sound really smart and tell you how many wars there have been in the history of man. No one even guesses, because most wars are little and unreported. Then they're going on at all times. As far as anybody knows, there has never been a time in human history when nobody was warring with each other. That's the truth about our world. I did do some research on war. I found that if you just, let's just take one war, uh, World War II, because World War II involves so much of the planet. In World War II alone, just one of the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of wars, World War II alone, 50 million people were killed as a direct result of the war. 50 million people. Now, to put that in perspective, that is one out of every 50 people on earth at the time. One out of every 50 people on earth, babies, men, women, children, not, I'm not just talking soldiers, the, the entire population of the earth one in 50 died as a direct result of the war. And some historians estimate that double that amount died as an indirect result of the war because of sickness, famine, poverty, and all of that kind of stuff. Unbelievable in one war. And that's just one of the countless wars in human history. We just can't seem to get along. But still, each individual's biggest problem is not a conflict that we have with another nation. It's not a conflict that we have with another tribe or people group. It's not, a, it's not the threat of terrorism. The biggest problem that we have in this area of peace is that apart from Christ, you don't have peace with the one and only holy God. That's the big problem. The, the scripture says that apart from Christ, we are enemies of God. That's not neutrality. Enemies. Uh, and, and take the book of Romans. If you're in John, just go two books to the right. After Acts, you find Romans. And go to Romans chapter 5. And we're going to pick it up in Romans chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 8. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now do you see why they call him the Prince of Peace? Because we have a lack of peace with God. And with a lack of peace with God, we have no resources with which to make peace with God. We can't bargain with God. We can't give Him anything He needs. We can't uh, turn the clock back and erase our sins against Him. The Scripture says we are enemies of God apart from Christ. And while we were yet enemies, He sent Jesus to be our Prince of Peace to be the one who makes it possible for us to have life again. He died while we were still hostile toward him, and he died for us. He came to give us peace with God. And he also becomes the source of peace between people and between groups of people. In, in Ephesians chapter 2, it gets into this. If you're in Romans, just keep turning and go past 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. 
Go to Ephesians 2. And let's pick that up in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at the time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ... You who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He is our peace. Now, you have to picture um, whatever, whatever level of division there is or divisiveness in our culture today, which is probably the worst I've ever seen it. How, how divided everything is, and, and we draw lines in terms of race, we draw lines in terms of wealth, we draw lines in terms of gender, we draw lines in terms of age, we draw lines in terms of political affiliation, and everybody's on one side of the line or the other. When you look at the divisiveness in America, let me tell you something, and I think you already know this, it doesn't hold a candle to the division in Israel, right? In Israel, you have Jews and you have Gentiles. And they're trying to live together on the same land. And how's that working? Not well. Not well this year. Not well last year. Not well 50 years ago. Not well ever. It's never worked well. It's been in dispute forever. And the fighting continues and the bloodshed continues. That's the kind of context in which he's writing this. Jews on the one hand who hate Gentiles. Gentiles on the other hand who despise Jews. And he's saying, listen, you guys are two camps, but what Christ does is makes you one. I think it's an awesome thing to think about in our culture today. You want to talk about the spirit of Christmas? How about this? What if during this time, the most divisive time in all of American history, what if the world could see Christ's church not segregated in terms of race, not segregated in terms of denomination, not segregated in terms of age, not segregated in terms of uh, political affiliation, not segregated in terms of nitpicky theological details, but one in spite of our differences? What if the world could see a church like that like, what, what would happen if for an unbeliever to walk into this room today and look around and see people of multiple races, multiple ages, multiple um, backgrounds and histories, people who speak other languages as a first language, and here we are all in the same room, not just getting along, but actually doing life together. That's what the Prince of Peace offers us. That's something bigger than let's just stop fighting with one another. Guys, we have a chance as the body of Christ to be the example to a world that wants to mark everything in terms of division. And we come together as one. What kind of a testimony does that give to the power of Jesus? He is the Prince of Peace. That's a fact. And the, and the word that's used for, for peace there in Isaiah 9 is the Hebrew word you've heard before, shalom. And, and the word shalom is very tough to translate because it's so pregnant with meaning. It, it, it doesn't just mean the absence of something. In fact, shalom doesn't speak about the absence of anything. So it's not just the absence of war. It's the presence of deep-seated well-being. It's the presence of joy that exists in spite of our circumstances. It's, it speaks of soundness to the core of your being. It speaks of completion. 
and purity. And, and so when someone uh, wishes you shalom, they're not just saying, have a nice day. It's much deeper than that. He is the prince of shalom. And when things are tough, and when you're at the end of your rope, and when you have no resources and no idea how to make it better, it's good to know the one and to follow the one who is the prince of peace. And so to wrap up, let me just ask you to think personally. How's your year been? It's, it's the end of the year. I don't know if you noticed. <laughs> it, you know, yesterday it was 2009, but this is the end of 2017. It just went by like that, right? It's December 17th, you guys. You might want to hit the malls, I'm just saying, okay? It's the end of the year. As you got to the end of this year and you think about the year that you've had, how's your year going? Because I'll tell you, my, my year has had some ups and downs. Not every part of my year has been fun. And I would imagine that that's true for every single one of us, that we've struggled and it hasn't been easy. That's why I'm glad Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Because even though there are so many challenges that are beyond my control, even though I can never guarantee peace with any other human being because they have their own free will, this side of heaven, that's not coming. In spite of the wars and the terrorist attacks and all of the upheaval that can come into our lives, I can still experience the peace of God. Because we already talked about peace with God. We who were formerly enemies have now become at peace with Him. That comes through the Prince of Peace. And we've talked about peace with other people, which also can only come through the Prince of Peace. But how about this? The peace of God. Philippians 4 says it surpasses understanding. So I'm not going to spend any time trying to explain it to you. (laughs) It's beyond our ability to understand. It doesn't compare to anything. But let me ask you this from experience. When you have the peace of God, is it awesome? It's awesome. But it rules in your heart and and it lifts you up and it carries you and it holds you. And it makes no sense to anybody else because circumstances say you should be falling apart. And the Prince of Peace comes along and says, I got you. It's okay. I'm going to take care of you. That's peace. The peace of God, it surpasses understanding. So peace between people, peace with God, the peace of God, all of that only available through the Prince of Peace. Because that Christmas night so long ago in that little town called Bethlehem, there was born unto us a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He's a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. He's the eternal Father. And He is the Prince of Peace. And He was born unto us. You remember the angel's message? You heard it. The kids, the kids read it to you today. Right? I read it to you last week. I read it to you the week before that. It's been in most of your Christmas cards. You've seen it over and over. And if you watch the Charlie Brown Christmas, Linus read it to you. And I am going to read it to you one more time. You don't have to turn there. It's Luke chapter 2. And I'm going to pick it up beginning in verse 8. Luke 2, 8. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. 
But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. You see the message? It begins in verse 10. When the angel appears, what's the first thing he says? Hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I have not come to give you what you deserve. (laughs) I've come to tell you that you're getting what you don't deserve. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You can have peace. Because the Prince of Peace has been born unto you, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then the message ends when all the other angels join and they begin to sing what the kids sang for us today. Glory to God in the highest, or Gloria in excelsis Deo. And as they, as they proclaim Gloria in excelsis Deo, they say that the, the reason that they're glorifying God is because He's come to give them peace. Peace that missing component. And what does Isaiah Isaiah 9 say? There will be no end to his government or to peace. You see, when you're in right relationship with the Prince of Peace, it never ends. He's got you. He's got you covered. And, And as you move into the home stretch of the Christmas season, let me just remind you The one who is our eternal father is also our prince of peace. So you know what, guys? Take a deep breath and enjoy him. Enjoy the fruit of a personal relationship with the one who's a wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. He came so you could have that relationship. Let's stand and pray together.